On this episode of Inside Music Cast, we catch up with one half of the most successful duo in the history of rock and pop. Over the past decade, he still tours on a limited basis with Daryl Hall, which has left him plenty of time to concentrate on solo projects and the opportunity to explore his musical roots, his love for folk, R&B, and Southern roots. From his recent solo release, Mississippi Mile, this is Comeback Baby from today's guest, John Oates. Well, come back, baby. Baby, please don't go. Know that I love you more than you ever know. Well, come back, baby. Let's talk it over one more time. No one gonna love you Much as I love you Come back, baby Let's talk it over Inside Music Cast kicks off 2012 with a very special guest, John Oates. Hey, John, thanks so much for joining us today. 
Hey guys, how's it going today? And good, uh, happy New Year to you. Absolutely. Well, same to you. Same to you. Let's <laughs> let's have a good one. Let's have a, hel- a happy and healthy. <laughs> Definitely. Hey, you know, uh, you know, when your name is mentioned, the general public's typical connection to you musically is to Daryl Hall and the music that you two created. But you know, really, your musical roots go quite a bit deeper than the pop hits of all, Hall and Oates. And you know, tell us a little bit about where you began as a musician and your influences. Well, you know, I, I, I like to joke that uh, people think I was born with a mustache singing man-eater. <laughs> but uh, 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 believe it or not, I, I actually started playing guitar at six years old. Uh-huh. And, uh, you know, by the time I met Daryl when I was about ni- 19, you know, obviously I've been playing for a number of years. And, um, you know, I had been playing in various bands, blues bands, rock bands, R&B bands, mm-hmm. uh, playing in coffee houses as a solo, you know, folk blues kind of performer. And I was doing that ever since I've been a little kid. Uh, so, you know, um, uh, this album, Mississippi Mile, gave me an opportunity to go back into the uh, into the roots and the influences and all the things that that turned me on as a kid and really inspired me on so many different levels from from a, being a guitar player, a singer, a songwriter, style wise, uh, and on every every level really. So when I when I actually met Daryl and we began to work together, uh, this is what I kind of brought to the table. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, of course, in our collaboration and our working together, you know, we we morphed into something totally different. But I never really left that stuff deep deep down inside. And uh, this this was an opportunity for me to not only pay tribute to it, but uh, get back to it and start enjoying it again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you 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 grew up in New York City, but um, inevitably you're associated with Philadelphia. So we're very curious to know about uh, you know your younger days in New York and your family, and and actually you know some uh, a question about your parents. You know, were they musicians? Were they musical at all? Or where did I mean you started pretty early at six playing guitar? What uh, was their family member influence in that? Well, not not directly. Um, you know, I, I I was born in New York City, and that's where my family is from. Mm-hmm. But at four at four years old, my father uh, relocated to Pennsylvania right. um, because of a job, and uh, it was in you know it was in the little little town in Pennsylvania called North Wales, Pennsylvania, only about uh, two thousand people, and um, you know it was on, it has since become the suburbs of Philadelphia, of course. But in those days, it was a really rural little town, little railroad stop, and. Uh, that's uh, that's where I grew up, uh, and that's really where my musical influence comes from. Uh, I kind of, as a little kid, I sang. Uh, you know, I have a recording of me singing uh, nursery rhymes and an early Elvis Presley song at about five years old. Um, <laughs> you know, from an amusement park, one of those amusement park booths where yeah. they cut cut an acetate literally as you were singing. Um, and but so my my parents recognized that I had some musical talent, and they uh, they they kind of uh, they supported me. They uh, they offered me um, lessons on an accordion, believe it or not, and I hated it because um, I, I had no desire to play the accordion, and I told them I wanted to play the guitar, and um, I started playing guitar and taking lessons as a little kid, and I took vocal lessons as well, and, um, you know, they, they just, I guess they recognized that talent, and at least they were supportive of me, but there was no real direct musical influence in, okay. in the house. Yeah. So, you know, just thinking, picking up an instrument at such an early age, you know, the accordion first, and the you know, then into the guitar. Did you play anything else? Uh, years later, I, I began to play piano and, and things like that. And, you know, and I dabble in various strings instruments like mandolin and banjo and things like that. But right. but the guitar is really my my instrument. Well, thinking about you know just just picking up an instrument and starting to play at such an early age, how did you hone your skills? Were you just were you being self taught or were you taking lessons or you know how, how were you really developing your craft at that early age? 
Well, my, my parents, uh, once I decided to play guitar, um, I borrowed a guitar from my, my, ne- my friend's uh, father, who was a next-door neighbor. He, he built uh, upright basses, double basses, and mm, uh, he, had, he had built this guitar, and it was really crappy, but it was a guitar, <laughs> and it was free. <laughs> so, uh, it was, you know, I, I had it, and I could barely play it. The strings were probably an inch off the neck, and um, I went, and uh, we finally got a little har- a used harmony guitar from uh, Sears and Roebuck or something, I, I can't remember, but... Um, I went to a teacher in, a, in the next uh, town nearby, and um, it was funny because I was left-handed. I remember my mom saying to the teacher, uh, well, you know, he's left-handed, you know, so, and the teacher said, oh, that won't matter. But she really didn't want to deal with turning the strings over and turning the guitar upside down and dealing with me. So I just learned to play the guitar right-handed, even though I'm left-handed. Wow. Uh, and uh, then I took vocal lessons as well from a local vocal teacher, and, you know, and I sang standards and, you know, everything from Broadway songs to country songs to the hits of the day and uh and uh, you know started doing little shows kids shows and pr- always mm-hmm. i was always kind of identified as as a as the performer you know whether it be in school or in social situations right yeah. we were in a situation where mom said hey uh john got your guitar sing us a song oh, honey uh yeah i still have scars from that um, <laughs> you know in fact to this day you know she used to make me wear this red blazer i have these all these pictures of me in a red blazer to this day i really can't wear red i have it <laughs> <laughs> I got a problem with that. Uh, and I remember we we used to do this. There was this uh, kind of a kids talent show that used to uh, ha- happen every weekend at, at a local amusement park in uh-huh. the summertime. And there was this one boy. He was a kind of an, like an Irish tenor, and he was the star of the show. Right. And uh, I, I didn't really want to sing or do anything. I wanted to go on the rides and have fun. And my mom used to make me, uh, you know, wait until I ha- until I finished singing. And uh, I always wanted to eat ice cream. And and she always said, "Well, Dennis doesn't." eat ice cream before he sings i was like oh screw dennis <laughs> so, so uh a- anyway um to this day i eat a lot of ice cream <laughs> and i never wear red so there you go you're still rebelling <laughs> after all these years yeah i'm a real rebel you know when you were 18 you were uh, you were in a band called the masters and you recorded a single called i need your love um you know tell us about about that that was your fr- your first recording right yeah, but you know that band. I actually started that band when uh, I, I joined the band. It was an existing trio with hmm. uh, some older kids, and I joined it when I was in eighth grade. And from eighth grade through twelfth grade, uh, we developed that band. It, the band got a little bit bigger. We added some horns. Um, I actually, I actually recruited my sister and my best friend to sing background, uh, and it became kind of like an R and B band. We used to play, uh, and uh, you know, it morphed into it had diff- a lot of different names over the years. It started out as the Avalons, then it became the Continentals, and then it finally ended up being the masters we um we pooled our money together from gigs and we actually rented a studio in philadelphia uh and i had written a song with our our bass player and uh we went down there and recorded it and hired a guy named bobby martin to arrange it bobby martin later went on to become one of gamble and huff's top arrangers on Mm -hmm. you know oj's and many many hits yeah Um, and Bobby helped us arrange it with the horns and things like that. And uh, we, we cut it at the Frank Virtue Studios on North Broad Street in Philadelphia in 1966. Mm. And that was, uh, Frank Virtue was known as the guy who did Guitar Boogie Shuffle. There's okay. a little bit of obscurity for you. Um, it was like, you know, probably a two-track or four-track, uh, and you know, tape recorder. And uh, it, was, um, it was our first, uh, you know, venture into recording. And uh, it got put out on the, on the Crimson label, which was a small record label in Philadelphia, the the only other release was Expressway to Your Heart by the Soul Survivors. Wow. And that record came out and started getting a little bit of traction on uh, local Philadelphia R&B radio. 
Very cool. I was thinking about you living in, in, in New York. You know, you've living in a big city, you know, you seem to have an infatuation with American roots music, such as, you know, bluegrass and folk. And, you know, I was just curious about during that time, and especially what was being played on radio, how were you hearing this kind of music? And what was it that, you know, uh, were, I mean, were there stations in New York that were, were playing this kind of music? I mean, how did you get attracted well, to it, it? It was really Philadelphia because, uh, you know, I, I moved from New York at four years old. Right. So I wasn't oh, aware okay. really of very much. Um, growing up, in, in, you know, outside of Philadelphia, of course, I was listening to Philadelphia radio mm-hmm. and, um, you know, R&B in particular, gospel, sure. R&B, uh, all that stuff. But, uh, you know, in the late 60s, in the early 60s, actually, if you recall, the, there was a big folk revival. True. And, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, Hoot and Annie and things like that were on mainstream television. But but deeper than that was was the um, kind of the rediscovery of so many, uh, you know, key seminal uh, roots musicians, uh, Delta Blues men, uh, Appalachian folk and things like that. And even though Philadelphia has this incredible tradition of urban R&B, it had an amazing folk tradition. And, if you know, the Philadelphia Folk Festival just celebrated its 50th anniversary. Mm-hmm. Um, Philadelphia was a hotbed of folk music. And I think really that's that's what, you know, identifies me, uh, you know, in terms of it's that blending, unique blending of urban R&B and, and roots, Americana and folk that, that I put together in some way. Uh, and And... You know, I got a chance to see so many amazing performers at the at the Philadelphia Folk Festival and in the local uh, the local folk uh, venues like the Second Fret, the Main Point. I mean, I saw everyone from Mississippi John Hurt, Sunhouse, Sonny Terry, Brownie McGee, Doc Watson, uh, Joan Baez. Wow. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, on and on, Elizabeth Cotton, you know, and and just on and on. And it was just, and I got a chance to really be up close and and and, and actually hang out with some of those guys when they hung out in, in Philadelphia. So, um you know, it was really, I was doing a lot of that, uh, a lot of performing on my own in coffee houses. And then the other, you know, it's funny, I like to make a little joke about it because I say, well, you know, when I was a kid, I used to put on a suit and play R&B in a band and then I'd put on a denim work shirt and I'd be <laughs> singing uh, blues in a coffee house. Yeah. And to, to this to this day, I'm doing the exact same thing. Yeah. So, you know, you attended Temple University mm-hmm. and uh, that's where you met Daryl Hall. And yep. uh, in Philadelphia. And, um, you know, first of all, what led you to Temple University? How did you end up there and how did you end up meeting uh, Daryl? It was it was dumb luck and convenience. Uh, honestly, I mm-hmm. I, um, I I wanted you know, I was I was. I wanted to go to college, I, you know, and I was I looked around at various uh, state universities in Pennsylvania, um, and uh, you know, I was a pretty provincial kid. You know, I grew up in this, even though I was born in New York, I grew up in a small town, and I, I wanted to, to get out. I want to get into this back to the city, and uh, Philadelphia was just the logical place to go. Um, I went to Temple because it was easy. Um, I, I got in. That was that was <laughs> that was also a major factor, and um, it also kind of put me at the periphery of the professional music scene in Philadelphia, and that's where I wanted to be. And so, even though I was a student, I was a journalism major, um, but I, I all I did was play music, uh, and every every minute that I could, uh, it was all about playing uh, around town, and you know, and gigging, and practicing, and learning, and, and doing stuff like that. So. Um, Philadelphia was just a very convenient place for me to go, and I uh, managed to get through school, and and uh, really, that's how I met uh, Daryl and, and started uh, working together. I'm assuming you hit it off right away, or did you, from, a, say, a musical perspective? We hit it off—I think we both recognized— uh, 
the talent that we we had uh and i i think that it was kind of it was interesting uh when my band the masters when that record was finished daryl had actually had a an album not an album i'm sorry a single out at the same time uh on the which was actually being played on the exact same stations so we were very aware of each other uh and uh my band had broken up because two of the guys had gotten drafted into vietnam oh i see and um, I was just kind of, you know, in between things, basically. And he asked me to uh, if I would play guitar in his backup band, like mm-hmm. be the backup band to his vocal group. And so I joined his band for a very brief period. It's probably only a month or two um, as a guitar player. And that his group was b- about ready to fold as well. And as that disintegrated, it kind of left the two of us. And we we just kind of gravitated toward each other. And we said, well, let's let's write some songs or hang out or, you know, so we we ac- actually became roommates in an apartment downtown in Philadelphia and we shared uh, you know places and kind of just started started doing things but at first believe it or not I mean the musically we were not very compatible uh, we tried to record something at the Temple University radio station and it sounded horrible <laughs> we we kind of looked at each other and went man we'll just we'll just hang out you know because this isn't gonna work you know <laughs> um, but obviously over the years we, we pulled it together yeah Exactly when was it that you guys formed Hall & Oates? Was it during college or was it slightly after you graduated? It was It was after. Um, what we did is we hung out for a couple of years and then I graduated in 1970. And one of my big dreams at the time was to uh, travel to Europe. I had never been to Europe. And uh, it was those days, you know, the backpacking kind of hippy-dippy days. And I literally put a backpack on and grabbed and had my guitar and I, I just went to Europe. I, you know, I sold I sold everything I had. I sold a motorcycle and, and uh, some records and... And, and whatever I had and uh, pulled some money together and uh, actually subletted my apartment to uh, Daryl's sister and her boyfriend and I took off for Europe and I was there for four months uh, from, uh, let's see, I think I left in June and I came back in September or October uh, and um, when I came back, uh, Daryl's sister and her boyfriend didn't pay the rent on the apartment and there was a padlock on the door <laughs> and um, I had nowhere to go so Daryl said, well, you can move in with me. And so I moved in at his place, and that's when we really started. That's when we actually began to start working. He he had been doing studio work and had been working with various bands, and he was very disillusioned with uh, everything that he was doing. And, you know, we were both kind of like in a spot where we just said, you know what? We don't need bands. Let's just, you know, you've written some songs. I've written some songs. Let's just go play. And that's what we would do. We would show up at a, at a coffee house or, a, or an art gallery, and, uh, you know, he'd We'd bring this little electric piano, and I'd bring acoustic guitar, and then Daryl started playing mandolin, and we just start playing songs, uh, and um, that's how it started. Well, I won't, I won't belabor um, a lot of Hall and Oates uh, right now, but, but you know, just one more question uh, about your first contract. I was thinking, you know, you guys had to be. Uh, it had to be just an amazing moment when you first signed that contract with Atlantic in 1972. Well, you know, it was of course it was incredible. It was a dream come true. But but the thing was is we did didn't really that was not our goal. Our our goal was not to be recording artists. Our goal was to be songwriters. And mm-hmm. we actually signed to Chapel Music as uh, staff songwriters. And okay. uh, in doing so, we started going to New York. And uh, while we were at New York in New York, just demoing our songs basically and thinking that they were for other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's when um, that's when we got kind of discovered. And we auditioned for Atlantic Records for Arif Martin. And Arif uh, Arif was the one who. Um, 
said, I want to produce these guys. We, I want them. And uh, on based on his uh, his recommendation and his endorsement, we got the, we got the deal with Atlantic. And of course, being R and B, you know, fans, uh, you know, being with that legendary R and B label was just uh, it felt like home. It felt like the place where we we should mm-hmm. we should have been. Yeah. You know, I'm glad you segued into songwriting and knowing that you guys wanted to become songwriters and and not necessarily recording artists, but in terms of songwriting, you know, from what I've gathered and from what I understand, you two were pretty equal when it came to writing duties. And, you know, thinking back to all the amazing hits you were responsible for, I mean, do you ever look back at at your career and, and ask how you managed to do it or try to put a finger on what the magic was that really made the chemistry that worked so well between you and Daryl? Um, yeah, it, it's a very tough, tough uh, question to answer because it's so complicated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I think it's a unique, it's a very unique relationship because it it, it has to do with a foundation of, of similarity and difference. And uh, we we um, you know we grew up listening to the same kind of music. Uh, I think we have the same kind of sensibilities when it comes to. Uh, the type of music we like and, and what we appreciate. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were both kid uh, musicians from, from birth, basically. Uh, and then I think, on the other hand, we're very different as people. And I think it's that difference that allows us to kind of stay together and brings different elements to the mix, but at the same time, that foundation of, of uh, a shared love for a certain type of music and a, and a certain way of thinking mm-hmm. that keeps it together. Uh, it's, 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 uh, I don't think we have enough time to really go into that right, one. Right. But, uh, yeah. but I, I, you know, to, to make it simple, I think that's, that's probably it. Yeah. yeah. Well, last last question on regarding your your writing is uh, maybe our listeners would be interested in, in, in knowing uh, were there any particular writing rituals that you guys I mean we you start off playing a, a lick or somebody has a hook uh, on, a, on a lyric I mean how how did you guys actually begin or was it varied I mean did you guys go all over the place as to how you wrote Yeah, v- varied is the is the answer. Uh, mm-hmm. The rules were no rules. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, Daryl and I did not necessarily collaborate on every song all the time. Yeah. Um, I think our our relationship is really one of two individuals working together, as opposed to uh, you know this kind of songwriting team in the classic sense. You know, Daryl would write something; he'd have it. You know, sometimes a full song by himself, sometimes a portion of a song. I would do the same thing. I'd write like a hook or a chorus, and and uh, he'd come in and, and we'd work on the verse together. Or I'd you know he'd he'd have something and he you know he said hey i've got this song i just wrote and he'd re- play it and i'd i'd kind of function more like an editor almost and and he yeah. did the same for me he'd come in and go hey that's really cool but i think that you know the thing you're using for the verse is probably a better hook if you t- you know do this it, it really was more like that and then over the years we you know we we had uh, we had a lot of collaborative help with people like sarah allen and her sure. sister her sister jana yeah. um who were just around the house and they just kind of through osmosis absorbed what we were doing and began to write songs and, and, and contribute to lyrics and things with us. I have a feeling it's probably a combination of both, but were you guys lyrics first or music first kind, kind of writers? Uh, no rules. Yeah. There were no rules. It, okay. there, it, it, whatever happened. You know, yeah. I mean, some, it could be a title. It could be, uh, you know, it could be a set of lyrics in, in, in terms of a, a poem or something you jot down in a journal. It could be a groove, a drum beat. I mean, really, seriously, uh, no rules are the rules. Well, John, let's stop for a couple of minutes, give you a break, and uh, let's introduce uh, the audience to uh, a track from your new album, Mississippi Mile. And this is a really cool and kind of unexpected arrangement of an Elvis Presley classic. This is All Shook Up. From our guest today, John Oates. Well, 
since we're talking about songwriting, I want to chat with you a little bit about the songwriting festival that you're involved with. It's the uh, 7908 Aspen Songwriters Festival. And I, I realize uh, you're an Aspen resident, but how did you get involved with this festival? 
Well, uh, about five years ago, I had been, uh, you know, well, I've been spending time in Nashville since the early 90s, uh, but I began to spend more and more time uh, here in Nashville. And uh, as I, as I you know, developed uh, friends and a circle of, of music, musical uh, associates here, uh, I began to get involved and people would ask me to join these songwriter circles, which is a great tradition. It started at the Bluebird Cafe in Nashville many years ago. And uh, it's just one of those things where songwriters get together in the round and sit down and they, you yeah. know, talk about their songs and to do round robin. Uh, I started doing that and really enjoying it. And I thought, you know, it would really be cool to do something like this in Aspen because we have this amazing Victorian opera house called the Wheeler Opera House. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's just absolute pristine uh, acoustic venue. So I approached the Wheeler Opera House with this idea. I said, let me bring some songwriters out and let me do a songwriters in the round show. And I called the series, uh, I did a series of, of three three shows and I called it the stories behind the songs. And I had Patty Griffin, uh, my buddy Jimmy Wayne, Tift Merritt, um, and a bunch of Nashville songwriters come out. And the show was, an, you know, the series was an overwhelming success, uh, but it never really went any further. And um, a, f- a year or two went by and uh, one of the city councilmen who had gone to some of the shows, uh, they were batting around some ideas on on just things to do, because the Wheeler Opera House is actually owned by the city of Aspen. Okay. And uh, one of the city councilmen uh, just came up with an idea and said, you know, I saw John Oates do this songwriter show. Uh, maybe we could expand it into a songwriter, a festival. And so it was essentially his idea. And when the Wheeler came back to me and said, uh, hey, we have interest in uh, the guys in city council. Want to see if you want to, you know, develop this. And I said, absolutely. And that's how it started. So uh, in partnership with the city and the, with the Wheeler Opera House, uh, I'm the executive producer and we began uh, this is our third year we're going into and uh, we've had a it's been a tremendous success and we have a television package now with uh, the new discovery network velocity yeah and uh, we're going to be on the air um, with a television special and uh, the the uh, festival will be march 21 through 25 uh, 2012 very cool that's a really exciting event that you're doing. You know, last year you had uh, invited some artists such as Sean Coleman, Elizabeth Cook, Kim Carnes, Keb Moe, Sam Bush, and, and so many others. Tell us about the process of, of how you go by inviting artists, whether they're known or many of them that aren't uh, quite well as known. Uh, I call them. Do you? <laughs> yeah. uh, that's, I mean, basically, it, it started out with me just going through my phone book and if I knew them and I had their number, I, I called them, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and I, I look for I look for uniqueness, and I look for um, what, what I what I was really was trying to do was create these unique collaborations that you might not see anywhere else. You know, put together. I, like putting together Kim Carnes and Elizabeth Cook was very interesting because even though they they seemingly come from you know different worlds, um, they they did a show together and it was really really unique to see that dynamic and how it evolved and how it it kind of became uh, you know. A, a, a unique performance and so we've done that on on many occasions i mm-hmm. think that's the probably the trademark of the festival so uh it started out that way and now i basically just I, my ear is to the ground all the time when it yeah. comes to songwriting and every time i see someone i like i just try to um, i talk to them about it and i send them my information i say hey we've got this great songwriters festival you want to come out to aspen and perform and uh and that's where we're at with it um, speaking of the 2012 festival, you know, you said it's set up for March 21st, and, and can you let it fill us in on who you have lined up for this one, or are you, is that still in the works? Oh, it's it's a pr- in the process of, of being booked, yes, but we do have some great artists already. We have Matt Nathanson coming um, to do a solo show. We, uh-huh. have, uh, we have a really unique uh, 
new group. It's called the Blue Sky Riders. And yeah, Kenny Loggins. Kenny Loggins yeah. and um, and Gary Burr. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be you know really unbelievable. And, That's cool. Uh, we've got so many great people. Um, I you know. Um, I can't even. My, it, they're escaping me. We're we're in the process of booking. We're, J D. Souther's coming out. Oh, nice. Um, nice. That's great. Kerry Rodriguez. Uh, oh, just it's going to be off the hook. It'll it'll be fantastic. I'm going to try to come out. I really want to come out to see this to see some of these performances. Well, please do. Yeah. Hey, let's shift gears a little bit uh, and talk about your new solo album release, which was uh, released at the beginning of this year, Mississippi Mile, and mm-hmm. in which you've totally captured the bluesy, swampy sound. I mean, you talked about your influence a little earlier, and uh, but you've used, after listening to this album several times already, you know, you use such a neat blend of instrumentation. It's raw. It's honest. Um, how long did it might have it taken you to uh, have this project incubate inside of you before it sort of... Uh, uh, became a reality. B- uh, believe it or not, n- no time at all. Uh, really? I had uh, I had done my first re- uh, album in Nashville about four years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, it was called Thousand Miles of Life, and even though I had been working here, I had never actually done a recording project here. And I called in so many great musicians, studio musicians, and and great you know good friends, and and everyone rallied, and and it was just an amazing experience, which I you know I, I it stuck with me, and I said, well you know what I'm I'm just going to record Nashville because it was just such a great environment and so such a great uh, feeling. So I had no I really did not intend to make another solo album so quickly. Uh, but what happened was I was sitting in my home studio just fooling around and I was playing this bluesy riff on the guitar. I just came up with this riff that I kind of liked. And for some reason, I don't know why, I just started singing the old Otis Blackwell, Elvis Presley song, All Shook Up. Yeah. And I, I imposed the song All Shook Up over this blues riff. And I thought, wow, that is a really unique take on on a classic and i and it was always one of my favorite songs and i then i started thinking well you know i could do that with some of the other songs that i like my like my old favorites and i started fooling around with them uh, i took a mississippi john hurt song called make me a pallet on your floor and mm-hmm. and turn and, and i kind of imposed this kind of swampy new orleans feel over underneath it and i thought hey man that's kind of cool and i said you know, this is really this could be fun and this could be easy to do and fun and uh, I reached out to to my buddy Sam Bush and I asked Sam about it and I told him what I was trying to do and I said you know Sam I think on this project I I would really like to work with someone co-produce it with someone who really has their feet deep in that in that blues and roots uh, style of music and he uh, mentioned a guy named Mike Henderson uh, Mike Henderson is is in a band called the Steel Drivers but he also does some incredible blues stuff on his own uh, with his own band. And I went to see Mike play uh, with his blues band, and the moment I heard him, I just said, "This is the right guy." Mm-hmm. And I uh, and through Sam, uh, we were introduced, and we we spoke. And I I went over to his house, and I sat down, and I played him some of these ideas, and I told him what I was trying to do. He said, "Man, I like it. Let's do it." And uh, it was as simple as that. I mean, the the album from the time the the thought came into my head and the time we recorded was literally just a, a couple months, oh, and. Wow. Uh, once we got in the studio, we cut the entire album in four days. That's amazing. We did four track. We, yeah, we did four tracks a day. We cut sixteen sides. Uh, we ended up with twelve on the album, and uh, it was recorded live, essentially in the studio. Uh, everything was there was no overdubs, uh, no fixes, hardly any. Uh, I every pretty much eighty percent of what I sang on the out, al- what you hear me singing on the album, is what I sang as we were cutting the tracks. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. So basically, you tracked everything live in a room. 
We did it old school. That's right. We That's sat cool. in a room. Everyone sat in a circle. We could see each other. Counted off. You know, we figured, hey, who's gonna? You know, what's the beginning? What's the end? Who's gonna take the solo? You know, one, two, three, four. Let's go. <laughs> don't don't you find that a lot of people are sort of migrating back to old school recording like this in the room? Yeah, if you can do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's what it's all about. It's about playing music. It's about spirit. You know, I, you know, I always think back on some of my favorite recordings and my favorite albums over the years, and it's not the technical perfection. It's not the this you know, it's it's not all the little details and and you know, and how, how you know, how how were the drums mic'd? You know, what kind of uh what kind of uh delay was on the guitar? That does that stuff doesn't matter. What matters is the spirit. What matters is the spirit that you capture and the spirit of the musicians and that is conveyed through the music to to the listener. And you know, the, most of my favorite records are the raw ones with the imperfections and the yeah, and, right. and that's that's what it's all about. And that's I was very conscious of that with this album I, I just wanted to make I just wanted to record and play and sing and and just have a good time with it and I think that comes across in the record definitely yeah, yeah. tell us a little bit about uh, the female vocalists uh, who were really outstanding in this uh, in this project who were they well, on this project, there was only one, uh, really? Becca, Becca Bramlett. Uh, uh-huh. She's the only gal that I, uh, you know, I've sung with her and her mother, the legendary Bonnie Bramlett, on my previous album. But on this album, uh, I really didn't want a lot of background vocals, but I wanted a, I wanted the, the feel of a woman uh, in there just to, to as a counterpoint to my vocal. And uh, I love singing with Becca. I think she's the greatest female singer I've ever worked with. And uh, uniquely, uh, un- unique in her sound and also unique in the fact that over the years with Daryl, um, we've never had a, a female on any of our records. So <laughs> I, I thought it would be kind of cool for me to carve out a little niche for myself and a, a bit of a different sound by working with her. And she's a joy to work with. She's a, she's, she's a force of nature. Um, you know, your performance on the song, It's All Right, is, is, is pretty amazing. And, and, you know, especially I was thinking about your control with your falsetto. And, you know, my question has to do more with how you maintain your voice and how you've kept it so strong over the years. I mean, any secrets or any, any thing, anything that you do to, to really maintain your voice? Well, yeah, I mean, the voice is a muscle and you, you do have to take, take care of it. Uh, it's a, I, you know, I learned how to sing properly at an early age. We sing, you know, both Daryl and I are the same. That's one of the reasons we're still singing strong uh, after all these years. Uh, we sing from our diaphragm. You know, we, we know how to control our voice and, and use it the way we need to use it. And you have to rest. You have to be conscious of it. Uh, you have to not get sick. I mean, there's so many yeah. little subtleties to it. But when you're touring, uh, as much as I tour, um, you really have to be careful and uh I'm very aware of it, and there's many nights when I feel, uh, you know, changes happening physically, and uh, I try to work around them. I've learned how to sing, and you know, kind of, it's it's complicated, but uh, it's basically taking care of the muscle, really. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of uh, straight up honky tonk uh, sound and vibe on Mississippi Mile, and one track in particular is called "Searching," in mm-hmm. which you introduce a piano, and uh, it's, it sounds like an upright saloon piano. To be honest with you, <laughs> it sounds beautiful. It's so raw, and I mean that's just one ingredient of the sound. But uh, overall, in this project, uh, I know you have other musicians who play. But how many instruments did you play on this album? Very few, very few. Really? Um, I played this little uh, acoustic guitar, uh, and 90% of what I did on the album was acoustic guitar. Uh, and uh, I played, I think, electric on only one or two tracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we had, I mean, I, sh- I really need to mention the other musicians. Of course, Mike Henderson, Please. Mike Henderson, who co-produced it with, with me, who I mentioned earlier, he played a slot, a lot, most of the slide electric guitar. Okay. Uh, Jerry, the other slide that's sliding around that you hear is Jerry Doug, the great Jerry Douglas uh, on the 
Dobro and Lap Steel, oh, who's yeah. just absolutely a genius. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Sam Bush on, on mandolin and fiddle. And it doesn't get much better than that. Uh, I, we had Dennis Crouch on upright bass. Dennis Crouch is a legendary bass player. He's played with everyone from Johnny Cash to Elvis Costello and on and on. Um, the great Michael Rhodes on electric bass. Uh, John Gardner was our drummer. He played drums on every track. Uh, we had Peter Hutlinger, who's one of the great acoustic guitar players sat in on a couple tunes and the piano piano man who you mentioned um kevin mckendry uh i had never met kevin and he was recommended by mike henderson and uh i didn't know kevin and uh he turned out to be the uh the surprise of the session uh you know he just played so beautifully and so funky and so real uh he's uh he's just unbelievable and he ended up being in my in my live solo band yeah on the, it's a wonderful track, but uh, on "Come Back to Me," who played the mouth harp? That's Mike Henderson. Mike Henderson. Mike, yeah, Mike Henderson played played harp and slide guitar. Yeah. Wow, that's neat. You know, I was curious about any your collaboration on this album. I mean, lyrically or musically, did you collaborate with anyone anyone on this, in particular, any member of your band, or did or was this pretty much a, an effort on, onto yourself? No, no, it's a solo album. I mean, I, I there's two original tracks and one Hall and Oates cover. On the two original tracks, I wrote those myself. Uh, on the Hall and Oates cover, obviously, it's a cover of "You Make My Dreams Come True," yeah. and that's kind of a, that's kind of an oddball track on the album. Uh, th- that happened as a joke, really. Yeah, uh, we were just fooling around in the studio in between takes, and. Uh, Pete, Pete Hutlinger, who's, uh, he loves Texas swing music, and started playing this kind of Texas swing feel, uh-huh. and I started singing You Make My Dreams Come True, and we <laughs> said, wow, now there's a weird, now there's a weird <laughs> juxtaposition, uh, and everyone loved it, and we just yeah. cut it. We cut the track in like three minutes, and you know, that was it. Yeah, and, I loved that one too. I thought, yeah. you'd, I thought I loved the arrangement, and speaking of arrangements, I mean, the, a lot of the songs on this album are covers, and I was, you know, curious, you, did you write all the arrangements for this? I mean, obviously, you said you just kind of collaborated, it was kind happened by mistake on you make my dreams come true but uh, as far as the other arrangements those are yours well on the traditional songs on the blues arrangements it was either my arrangement or my my arrangement with mike henderson mm-hmm. um okay. you know like but but a lot of the arrangements really uh they have to you have to credit the entire uh, rhythm section because it, this was done completely spontaneously so we'd be in there you know we'd say hey guys you know i mean i'll, I'll explain to you very briefly how it worked um because I was playing acoustic guitar, I had to be in a vocal booth, so we had some isolation, and I was also singing. So I had this little booth with a window in front of me so I could see the rest of the guys. But most of the guys were sitting in the room, so I would um, I would go out into the room, sit on a stool, and I'd say, okay, guys, here's the song. And I would start playing It's All Right, or I'd play Come Back Baby, or Send Me Somebody Love, or whatever. And I'd start playing it, and I'd play it once. Everyone would jot down their little notes. Okay, what key is it in? You know, how, you know where, where are we going to do? And... That was it. And I'd walk back into the booth, lock myself in the room, and drummer would count it off, and we'd start playing. And everyone contributed to the vibe and the style. Uh, you know. And so it was a really organic kind of... You know, when you get great musicians in a room... The best thing to do is trust them, right? And let, exactly. and, and let them do what they do. I mean, yeah. that's why that's why they were there. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, it, you know, believe me, I'm not telling Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush what to play. <laughs> trust me. <laughs> Pro, <laughs> That'd be the pro. last thing I'm going to do. Sam Bush is incredible. I've seen him perform a few times, and uh, uh, and, and with Lyle Lovett as well on stage. And he's just he's just a, a treasure to watch. He's just an amazing player. 
Oh yeah, he's he's become one of my best friends, and uh, we play together all the time now. And uh, he's he's a good he's a great human being, and and a really you know you know one of the all time great bass uh, mandolin players. Oh, without a doubt. And don't forget, you know, people don't realize he was uh, he was Kentucky fit, uh, state fiddle champ when he was a little kid, and he he's <laughs> playing all he's playing all the fiddle on the album as well. Wow, cool! Did, did you did you ever get a chance? How 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 extensive did you tour with this album? Did you take it out on the road very much? Yeah, I did sixty five shows this year with just my solo band. I'd say, okay. uh, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you know what I wanted to do was I, I dedicated this year not only to promote the album, of course, but I dedicated this year to developing my solo band, developing a solo show, and really developing a, a solo identity that was distinct from Hall and Oates and distinct from anything I had done before. And that took a lot of hard work, and it was very rewarding because I put together a great band with uh, two of my best friends from uh, Aspen, Colorado, who I've been playing with for about 10 years, John Michelle and Michael Jude on drums and bass. And they uh, they encouraged me to hire a guy from New York on slide guitar named Mark Newman, who they had played with years ago. And then I brought in Kevin McKendry, who, as I mentioned, played all the piano on the album. And we formed this cute little rhythm section that is just absolutely you know, developed into this really dynamic band. And I just, uh, I'm just very proud of those guys. And, um, I'm, you know, I look forward to every opportunity I get to play with them. Yeah. Well, let's talk. I mean, I, I want, I still want to talk about feng shui a little bit because mm-hmm. although it's, uh, the, you know, it's almost uh, a few years before the style and everything that you, you carry out this R and B funk groove, that type of thing, you do it really well. I mean, that's all part of, um, the mixture of the influences that you've had as in throughout your career, right? Well, I do. Yeah, I mean, I do. I have a lot of influences. Mm-hmm. And uh, on Feng Shui, I really, that was my first solo album. And yeah. it was a, I did it with a good friend of mine, Jerry, uh, Jed Lieber, who's the son of Jerry Lieber, the legendary Lieber and Stoller songwriter, mm-hmm. who uh, unfortunately just passed away recently. Um, but uh, Jed Lieber and I did that album together. And he's a, he's a fantastic musician. And, uh, I, but I have to say, looking back in retrospect, it was one of those albums where it's like, okay, it's my first solo album. What are we going to do? Let's kind of get it out out of our system kind of thing uh, yeah. it was a collection of older songs some new uh, it was a little bit you know I, I, it lacked focus but it had a lot of spirit yeah um, I think uh, you know the the next album uh, thousand miles of life which I did in Nashville mm-hmm. uh, in 2000 and uh, I think eight or nine um, that was much more focused and that was a very personal album very very mature a lot of mature subjects it was about it was about passing on and and time and and uh, a lot of really kind of deep, deeper things that uh, it wasn't exactly a fun album in terms of uh, in terms of its spirit, but it was a very deep and personal album. And that's why I think on the new one, I, I really went for just having a great time. Yeah. I got you. Well, there's on the new one. It's it's almost as if you've you've peeled off all of the unnecessary stuff, and you got right down to the heart of the music. And it's That's it's right. simple. It's it's raw, um, but it's 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 so honest. I think it's uh, you know a, a few of the several of the tracks. I was talking to Rick earlier that there's such cohesiveness in in this whole project of, of Mississippi Mile that you know it's almost you want to sit back, listen to the whole thing. I mean, at one point, it actually sounds as if it could be applied to a musical score. You know what I mean? Uh, or uh, to a movie, you know? Well, I appreciate you saying that because you, you hit the nail on the head. Uh, the, the, you know, I think it took me three albums to to figure that out, to to realize that the, the cohesiveness needed to be there and it needed to be a, a very single-minded and very, uh, very focused um, sound approach and vibe. Uh, that's what, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually 
you know probably that's one of the things i'm most proud about this album so you you did you you really did hit it on hit the nail on the head uh and that's what i wanted to do with this album there's you know as you said it one song flows to the other everything feels the same uh you know having the same musicians on every track recording it at the same time in the same Mm -hmm. studio Mm -hmm. in a very compressed period of time uh all those things contributed to to achieving that effect yeah you know, just looking ahead, uh, you're going to be out on tour in Europe and Japan this coming spring. And, and I tell us a little bit about this tour and uh, who are the band members uh, you're taking out on the road with you. Well, it's the band I just mentioned to you. It's uh, the, the, my two my two drummer and ba- the drummer and bass player from Aspen, okay. uh, John Michelle and Michael Jude, and then um, guitar player Mark Newman and keyboard player Kevin McKendry. Yep, and. Um, this is basically the, these guys are my band, and mm-hmm. uh, I decided after touring so extensively in the United States this year, um, I haven't been to Europe in many years, and uh, you know I go to Japan quite frequently, but I just thought maybe I'd dedicate next year to uh, playing in Europe and trying to develop a, an audience there and just doing something different. I, I'm at a point in my career and life that I, you know, I want to do something interesting and different, uh, and. Uh, right. You know, it's just felt like, hey, this this might be fun. It might yep. be, it might, you know, who knows? I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, it might be a total bust, or it might uh, it might open up an entirely new uh, audience and world to me. So uh, I said, let's let's give it a try. So that's uh, that's where we're going with it. Great. Yeah, we ha- you know we have uh, on Inside Music Cast, we have tons of listeners who are who live in various countries in Europe. And uh, do you have any idea what countries that you might be pointing to specifically? Because it's uh, yeah, it's, it's a different vibe of that. Yes, I do. Um, well, I can I can tell you. Uh, that we're going to Japan uh, the first week of April from April 4th to April 8th we're playing at the Blue Note in Tokyo we're going to do four nights there cool. uh, in one spot and then we're going straight to Europe and uh, we start uh, we start in northern Europe in Germany uh, we're looking at Vienna Prague uh, Berlin Frankfurt um, Belgium Holland uh, and then we'll probably finish the tour. In fact, we will finish the tour at the end of April, around April 24th to the 25th in uh, in the UK, in various dates in the UK, about four or five shows there. So that's pretty much a, a kind of a rough out of what we're doing. Uh, in February, I am going over to Ireland to do the uh, Belfast Songwriters Festival, and I'm going to do much more of a singer-songwriter thing without the band. I'm playing in Dublin and Belfast, uh, but that'll be, that'll be much more of a singer-songwriter thing uh, yeah. with uh, Nancy Griffin and uh, Nick Lowe and a bunch of other great uh, songwriters. So that's a little bit of a one-off that happens in February. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to let our audience know, you have another album on the way. It's a live recording with your solo band, and it's called The Bluesville Sessions. And tell mm-hmm. us a little more about this project and when it might be released. Well, uh, at the end of this tour in October, we were on an East Coast swing. Uh, we had just played in uh, around the East Coast, Connecticut, Boston, and New York. And um, we... We had arranged a uh, live uh, recording uh, at the XM Sirius Radio Studios in Washington, D.C., and uh, we went down there with the band, and we captured some magic. And uh, you know, you never know when you go into these things whether you, you know you're going to be on or it's not going to be. You know, whether the spirit's going to be there. And uh, it was just one of those really great sessions where we recorded recorded 12 songs, and um, we did it. You know, uh, literally, you know, just played them. I mean, because you know yeah. we were pretty pretty well oiled at that time, and yeah. uh, you know, from <laughs> from having played so many shows, and it was a great time to capture the band uh, with some great arrangements, and uh, we're just so happy about it. We 
decided to put it out as a, as a live album. So it's live in the studio. It's not right. live in front of an audience. There was no audience involved, but uh, it is literally as, as we recorded it. And uh, I'm very, very excited about people hearing it because it really captures the, uh, the solo band. I think we've taken the, the Mississippi mile uh, tracks to another place uh, in terms of uh, energy and, uh, you know, it's 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 what happens when when you get a band on the road for uh, '60s five shows. And uh, while the album hasn't been released yet, John was kind enough to share a track with us. And from the Bluesville sessions, this is Mississippi Mile. Yeah. <laughs> 
open mind Feels like I've done my time But I'm so Just looking ahead, you know, post spring into 2012, uh, yeah, it sounds like you got a pretty full plate. But is there anything else happening that uh, we might be aware of? Well, I'll, I'll continue to uh, I'll continue to work with Daryl. We've yep. got uh, we've got we've blocked out some time for 2012 where we'll be going out with our Hall and Oates show, and uh, we we just love doing that. Uh, we do it. I think we do it enough to uh, you know to make people happy, and we do it not enough to keep us interested. Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's great. That, if that makes sense, uh, you know. Yeah. I mean, you know, Daryl and I want to make sure it's it's we want to keep it unique and special, and we want to make it you know an event every time we perform. We just we just performed at the Rhyme. Ryman, uh, Ryman Auditorium here in Nashville just last week, and it was off the hook. I mean, yeah. it was a great show. It was exciting, and people love it. Uh, so, so I love doing that, and uh, and then I love going back to my solo band and doing that stuff too. So we've got some, uh, you know, it's going to be a full year, but it's fun because uh, I just feel like I've been re-energized in a lot in so many ways musically, and uh, I'm I'm just uh, excited about playing and singing. That's awesome. Very cool. John, I can't tell you how much we appreciate you uh, being with us today and uh, appreciate your time. And, and of course, for our audience, uh, be sure to check out Mississippi Mile because it's a wonderful album and I think you'll enjoy it. So, John, John, what's your website where people can go and uh, check out your music? Uh, Well, it's (laughs) www.johnoats.com, one word. And you can also check out the Hall & Oates website, which is hallandoats, all one word, dot com. And, you know, I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all that good stuff. If you go on my Facebook page you see all see me hanging around with all kinds of <laughs> all kinds of nefarious characters uh, all right well wonderful well, and well, good fans too so. <laughs> absolutely well welcome to inside music cast when you stop by uh, anytime on on imc and uh and say hello to everybody because there's a good following there and i'm sure they'll be interested that you're uh, you're you're up you're moving you're doing some exciting things so thanks a lot thanks for having me Appreciate all right thanks john okay bye thank you Special thanks to John Oates for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. We'd also like to thank our correspondents, Kim Riley, Brian Pearson, Scott Gross, and Max Zape, for their continued support and content development for Inside Music Cast. Inside Music Cast is powered by Cabello Associates and Earshot Audio Post. For more information about becoming a sponsor and sharing your message with thousands of music fans around the world, please visit InsideMusicCast.com for contact information. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.